0: Welcome to the Active Travel Academy podcast. I'm Professor Rachel Aldred, Director of the Active Travel Academy. The podcast is back for 2023 with a new series of episodes specifically around active travel research that relates to themes of social justice, intersectionality, equity and diversity. For this episode, my colleague and now Active Travel Academy PhD researcher Dulce Pedroso is at the helm. Dulce started her PhD in January and previously she held a fellowship with ATA to conduct work looking at cycling experiences among women of colour. She's interviewing a Acquazioso, currently a transport planner for Climate Action Charity Possible and previously also an ATA Fellow looking at experiences of black men cycling in London. The interview took place in our Marleybone Road campus, next to one of central London's busiest roads. So you may hear a little bit of background noise from the traffic.
1: My name is Tulsa Petrosa and uh, I'm really pleased to be here recording a new episode for the Active Travel Academy podcast. I'm especially happy to be here with Akwesi Ose, who is an Active Travel Academy fellow, also another Justice in and for Active Travel grant recipient, who. Did some really interesting research on barriers to black men's cycling. Okay. And he's written a paper called You Always Think About What Other People Be Thinking. And for me, this was a really interesting uh, paper because it talks about similar issues than my own papers. But I looked into women of colour. So I read through your paper from that lens and uh, spotted a lot of similarities, but also some, um, clear differences as well. So maybe like over the next uh, 40 minutes or so, uh, we can sort of dive into those themes a bit. So yeah, maybe I'll just uh, let you introduce yourself before we get into the paper. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. Um hello. Um so yes, my name is Akwose. I'm a transport planner at the climate action charity called Possible. Um I've been with them for two years and whilst I started that job I also was really lucky to have got the grant to do this research with the Active Travel Academy. I was really keen to do the research because I think as a lot of people during the pandemic. Um, a lot of us took up cycling. I can't say cycle as much now. Um, but I was really, um, I guess I, I was just kind of really interested in the, like, racial background of a lot of cyclists because I realised there wasn't many cyclists that looked like me, and I just became very curious as to why. Um, so when I did see the call for um people to apply for this grant it was kind of like a no-brainer and I've always had an interest in not just transport but social justice and transport equity so this just kind of ticks all the boxes really and my background has been in planning both town planning and transport planning and um, those what both my degrees are in so I guess I'm very much in the planning circles
1: Oh, that's amazing. Um, So I think what sets your um, research apart from other research that looks at cycling and um, and black men or minority groups that you chose to focus on a group that already cycles Hmm. uh, rather than sort of looking into barriers and perceptions among people who don't cycle, which I feel is probably the more um, common approach. So why did you go with that?
2: Good question. I was very... I think obviously with research, we kind of always, and I can imagine with a lot of research, we always kind of want to know like why things aren't happening. But I think with, there's just such little amount of research on barriers to cycling on Black men. I thought it would might be more beneficial to actually understand the barriers that current Black men are already facing in the cycling world to see what we can do to improve that um and see whether there are any learnings I guess from those that are already cycling and whether we can use those learnings and the findings from obviously my research to see whether we can do anything to improve um the ability to cycle for those that aren't cycling already. So that was the main reason and I think also even from like a methodology perspective, it's I mean like it's it was easier kind of to actually go for those to try and find people that are already cycling as well. But I did, I think with my research, I did try to get people that, um, people that cycled quite a bit and then those that cycled maybe once or twice a week or once or twice a month and those that cycled just less occasionally. So I did try to at least try and get a wide range of um, cyclists to try and see if there was any differences between them.
1: and how did you find the people because i think because the i mean obviously language around cycling is already quite political and our framing already kind of uh uh, set certain parameters i found that uh certainly in my research that when i went out there and said i'm looking for cyclists (laughs) that immediately kind of like leads to a certain type of sample so how did you go about with your um yeah
2: Yeah, um, it, I mean, I was quite, well, initially I was quite ambitious, I really wanted to actually do research on like a hundred black men, but I was quickly told that it's just way too ambitious.
1: Maybe we should just point (laughs) to listeners, that this this was a qualitative study as well. (laughs)
2: Um, so the way I went about it was I kind of just went through loads of like, um, loads of different circles, mostly try like word of mouth, but also I primarily, I used social media to kind of spread the word and I was telling people to tell other people that they knew if they knew any um other black men that cycled um some i think one or two participants were people that were um mutual friends, but mostly through social media I got people and like I think it was. I was kind of lucky in a sense, um, weirdly that I think because it was still around the time of the Black Lives Matter movement, there were so many um kind of Facebook groups already set, not necessarily around um cycling, but around Black people in London, for example. I think there was one that I used that was set around Black businesses, Black-owned businesses in London, and there were thousands and thousands of people on that Facebook group, including myself. So it was that was really helpful in just trying to get people quite quickly. So social media was really uh, useful. Yes,
1: yeah. And um, obviously your participants identified as black men, but that in itself is quite a broad category. Yeah. yeah. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about like, who did you have in your sample and maybe the benefits and disadvantages of that?
2: Yes, I think, um yeah, it, it is true because I think with, Obviously, the term black men, it can mean, obviously, people from African descent, Caribbean descent, um, first generation immigrants. It could be people that were born here. I think that's one of the things that I really wish, that's one of the reasons why I wanted a much broader um, Mm -hmm. sample size. So then I could do more research and differentiate, find like uh, similarities and differences between different groups. Um, But unfortunately, I didn't have the sample size uh, to do that. Um, but the majority of, of my participants were British born. I think the ones, a few that were especially older, um, weren't British born ones, but there was a mix of those that were from, um, African descent and Caribbean descent. Um, I don't think there was any others, any other, um, black men in there. Um, but yeah, it's again, it's one of the great, it's like, for example, if I could do this again, I would definitely, and if I have more people, <laughs> um, I would love to do a much bigger sample size and try and like get people from, especially um, focus on the differences in terms of whether, um, whether they're British born or if they're from particular countries and so
1: forth. Mm-hmm. But it still tells us quite a lot um, in terms of sort of your position in society and uh, regardless of your sort of your country of origin and, uh, and your heritage and so on. Um, you're still racialized in a similar way, which I expect perhaps uh, shapes the experience of these men uh, in a similar way. So did you find that? Yes,
2: yes. I think that's that's the thing. I think with a lot of the bindings, you could see that it was most... A lot of the bindings were kind of based on people's experiences of how they felt people treated them simply because they were black. And that was kind of like the... um, almost like a ceiling, if if you like, like they were them being black is what came first, regardless of their age or anything else. So, in a sense, um, and I kind of knew this already, I mm-hmm. um, a cyclist myself, uh, but so in a sense, whilst it would have been great to have had um, a larger sample size to, again, understand the differences between different um, black men, there was still a lot of the findings and a lot of the research. It, the common theme was simply the fact that they were black men and the findings were quite similar.
1: Yeah. Can you give me an example of...
2: Um, I would say probably the biggest example mm-hmm. was probably the... Which is quite sad. Probably the amount of um, participants that brought up Stop and Search and how they felt that that was mostly due to the fact that they were black men. Um, and this was... To be fair, this was definitely more... Um, common with younger participants and actually the younger, it was almost like the younger the participant, unfortunately, the, the worst experience was, um, the youngest participant on the day of his interview, he was actually stopped and searched. Whereas the oldest participant didn't quite believe that, um, he would be stopped and searched purely based on the color of his skin. Um, so it was that was really interesting. That was definitely something I would have loved to research more again.
1: Right. Yeah. Outside. Yeah. That's yeah. That kind of an, another level of intersectionality, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, where sort of aid interacts definitely. with yeah. race. Um, yeah, I found that really interesting because that wasn't something that came uh, came up in my research, as you might expect, mm-hmm. and that probably aligns with sort of general statistics about stop and search, The really, women don't tend to get stopped and searched uh, at the same rate at all. Um, however, there is some like underlying similarities uh, in the experience of the people who uh we um who participated in our respective uh projects. Uh and that's sort of how sort of the racial and racist dynamic and sexist dynamics as well, in the case of the women who I um, participated in my research, uh, interact with a cycling experience. But you said, I think somewhere in the paper, or maybe it's one of your interviews, who said it's not so much even about cycling, it's just about taking space, like yeah. existing in public space.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. which is, again, it's such a shame, but I think that was another thing. And I think one of my participants um, did mention that it, in that it's not just because we're cycling, it's simply being a black man in the public space, it just makes you, um, I guess, susceptible to racism and that comes in its many forms and that includes stop and search. Um, so it was really interesting and I think it also then makes, I, I can imagine with readers as well, it does make you think, okay, so if they were walking, would, would they have the same experiences and is it would it be better, would they be more likely to be stopped in search or less likely if they were walking or cycling on a different form of um, public transport? So I, I guess, in a sense, again, yeah. <laughs> I feel like this is going to be a common theme yeah. in that, again, I wish I could have researched even more and I would love to do more on just Black men in the public space as well. And I guess, for example, in... The current job that I do, we've also done research on, um, black men on scooters. Okay. And we found, um, probably unsurprisingly mm-hmm. that black men were far more likely to be stopped and searched and to have their, um, scooters taken, um, from them if, well, if they're black compared to obviously, um, white men and Asian men. So it, it does draw back to, in a way that it's not necessarily that they're on bikes. It's just the pure fact that they're in a public space. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: But they're perhaps more visible, maybe, or something. Yes, I think. um, And that kind
2: of draws um, to, for example, the issue of clothing, Mm. which is what some of my participants um, picked up on. And again, this is more the younger participants in that some of them were more... um, get scared in the sense to for example wear um for example jogging bottoms or like mm-hmm. tracksuits because they thought that would give them more of a a stereotypical look of being of doing something illegal um or like they're about to commit a crime compared to if they were dressed more I don't know <laughs> in like other clothing as well. Um so and I think that combined with being on the bike, for example, I think one of my participants said that if he was wearing Um, a tracksuit on a bike you'll probably be perceived as a drug dealer or something of the sort um so cycling definitely does come into it to a sense but um i think you you could argue and say that the very root of it is simply being in the public space as a black man
1: yeah and the type of bike as well that drew my attention um i think you made a a kind of contrasted mountain bikes with like you know very sort of racy frames and then yeah how that maybe shapes the experience of the riders yeah. uh,
2: which was it was just a shame because it almost came across as like it's almost like a loose situation because mm. if you have this rich expensive bike people may just assume you've stolen it whereas if you <laughs> have, have a much more affordable bike people may just might assume you are poor in a sense oh and it goes back to the whole issue of Status of Mm -hmm. riding a bike. Um, So, which was really sad to hear. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it just really goes to show that just even the type of bike you have can really impact someone's experience of cycling.
1: Let's talk about status because I thought that's interesting because it was kind of brushed on in the interviews that I did, but it didn't come across as a significant. Barrier or an issue to women that I interviewed, although they mentioned it might be an issue within their communities and I wonder um, again i 'm just kind of drawing conclusions here, but whether there it 's a difference again, like a gender difference in terms of like how much status matters. Mm and how much you communicate your stages through sort of your material possession and so on. And and yeah, I'm just guessing uh, whether that is perhaps a bigger factor among men and for black men in particular, did it come up through in your research?
2: Yeah, I think it kind of boils down to, in in many black communities, I think men are still viewed as the breadwinner, or they still have to be the breadwinner. Um, And especially if they're in, if they're younger and are coming from single parent households, they're sometimes seen as, like, the man of the house. But I think, again, it comes down to, like, they could be seen as the leader of the house or they have certain responsibilities that are different to women in the house. And therefore, that usually comes down to they may have to sort out the transportation for um, certain family members. And I think with that, there's, like, a there's just this idea that if you're cycling, then how on earth are you going to take the whole family out? And, again, as well, there's, I think one of my participants said that having a car kind of shows that it's almost like you've made it in mm-hmm. life um, and all the family has made it in life um, and has climbed, like, the social ladder. Whereas cycling, which is still something that is not obviously common in a lot of black communities in the UK, it's still seen as, like, a kind of poor man's activity or that you you clearly haven't made it then if mm-hmm. you're doing something. Big one of our participants put it this way, which I thought was really interesting in that, it's how could you have made it if you're cycling because cycling is free well arguably Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) free if you already have the bike and two it's you're kind of like it's you're using physical effort so it's kind of seen as like well that's obviously a poor man's activity whereas you know cars well I guess it's kind of common knowledge now that like cars is still marketed as like this luxurious form of transport and again you could put many people in the car so it, it was interesting. I think it's, I could definitely see why that would come across more in my research compared to your research due to my being focused on black men. I think also it was interesting that it seemed to be across all different classes and genders, not mm. uh, gender, sorry, ages. Mm. Um, it, there was, I, from my memory, I don't remember there being any intersect with status, which is I guess it it was it was hard to hear, but I mean I had to be even honest because I resonated with it because even my own family mm-hmm. still carries some of those views, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, and, I, and I've heard it so many times. Mm-hmm. Um, and even like when I've done research t- uh, previously to do public transport, that status is it's still a common theme as well. So.
1: Um, I wasn't surprised. Yeah. I mean, there's a long history, uh, okay. behind that, um, that, uh, migrant communities have traditionally been doing like sort of physical and laborious, mm. uh, physical labor. And it's kind of an idea of like exerting yourself voluntarily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, it feels like a middle class or a foreign concept. Yeah. Um, you only, uh, yeah, you use, um, you do physical work because you have to and you mm-hmm. haven't made it. You're not a white-collar worker yet. Yeah. Um yeah, my other half of my family in Cuba. I remember when I went there and they asked me about my car, and I said, I don't have a car, I uh cycle uh everywhere, and then just this silence just descended <laughs> yeah. room. And then someone said oh, isn't she humble? Just, just imagine to admit that. <laughs> um, so they turned it into like this awkward uh, situation into like kind of a strength that I was um, I was showing some kind of, yeah, humble quality by admitting that I don't drive a car.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I have very similar stories. Like even my dad lives in Ghana and he's still to this day, he's always asked me like, when are you going to drive? Like, I don't understand. (laughs) And I'm like, there's no need to drive and I don't intend to. And my, my sister actually, which is really interesting, she equates not just to status, but she was like, it's quite evil. She's <laughs> always saying like, oh, no one's going to marry you unless you <laughs> drive. I'm like, well, I hope that's not true. Um, but again, it just goes back to like the status that is attached right. to driving and it, that status simply is just not attached to cycling. If anything, there's a negative.
1: And there's a lot of research, I think, uh, about sort of the masculine, masculinity and mm. cycling or rather how cycling is not seen as a masculine activity. So yeah. it's kind of infantilized. Mm. and then black men have that history of being infantilized, as it is. Mm. So to, yeah, to come across as sort of a grown man, yeah, yeah, you don't want to be like, you know, on your BMX.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a shame because I love to cycle on a BMX, but yeah, even my mum, she just doesn't. It took her a very long time when I started cycling the pandemic to really just get her head around it. Um, She still has her reservations. But yeah, Mm -hmm. it just goes to show that there's, I guess there's a lot of work to do within our communities as well, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting um, in my research. That it's not just other communities in mm-hmm. the sense of racism, but there's also work to do within our communities
1: as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, no, totally. I found that as well with uh, uh, with the women who I spoke to um, that some of these um, some of, some of these barriers are internalized and they are. They come from the sort of the wider society and these deep rooted uh, biases and racism. But a lot of it also comes uh, is internal and comes from within communities. And uh, it was maybe a bit more common uh, among Asian women um, who had who came from families with more traditional views of gender roles so that's probably another perhaps difference um both cultural difference because i looked at women of color which included women of asian backgrounds uh, whereas you looked at more like african and caribbean uh men but also something that's yeah quite quite specific to to women probably another thing that um didn't come across maybe as much as transport planners talk about it i mean safety but it did come across a little bit in my research with women um although interestingly um and this is not specific to women of color i think it's specific to women in general that when they talk about safety it's not just safety from traffic it's also safety like personal safety from harassment and stuff other than the policing angle um Was sort of safety a theme in your research? Did it come up?
2: That's really interesting to bring up. The short answer is it did not come up that often. Safety, I think when safety was talked about, it was mainly in the form of infrastructure, Mm. especially cycle lanes. And I think obviously there were some participants that said they felt a lot um, safer, more likely to cycle where there were cycle lanes, but it was not... It didn't come across that often, or was it a significant part of interviews, I would say. Mm-hmm. And I know some participants, they did actually make a, for example, I remember like at least two, um, mentioned how cycling infrastructure is a lot better in areas like Walthamstow and Hackley in East London compared to South London, where there are bigger black populations. Mm-hmm. Um, as they perceive it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting, but safety as a whole in terms of especially harassment from the public. Did not come up that often, although somebody else, at least one participant, did mention racism from other um, vote users. Um, I'm sure that came up like at least once or twice.
1: Yeah, um, I seem to remember, actually, I think there was somebody who talked about uh, sort of white man uh, yeah. drivers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one because when I was reading it was like, yeah, but they are white run drivers, you know, and um, they're trying to get from one place to another in the shortest possible time frame. And they are, uh, uh, yeah, a menace to everybody. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, he was, the interview there was kind of like seeing the aggression that he felt like from a kind of a racial perspective, even though. <laughs> There wasn't anything explicitly sort of racist about that interaction. And it did make me think the women in my research had not with in this, not, not the same example, but similarly, they had, they second guessed themselves and were kind of wondering whether an incident was a racial or racist mm-hmm. one or not. And uh, I thought that's kind of the reality of living as a uh, minoritized, a racialized, uh, community member. Mm-hmm. Is that you're never 100% sure. Yeah, yeah. It's rarely explicit. Sometimes it is. Mm. But most of the time probably isn't.
2: Yeah, Mm. that is true. And that reminds me back to one of the participants in when he was saying that, like, the the act, like, if anything happens while cycling uh, with another road user, the thought of you just always have to be... um, you just always have to be careful what your reaction is and you always have to think twice because you as a um black person, you're more you're more likely to get in trouble with right. authorities. Or you're more
1: So like for minor infringements.
2: Exactly, mm. exactly. And some participants felt that they're more likely to receive probably like backlash from the voters if they ever got an argument, for example. So they felt like they was just a need to just anything went wrong, just to apologize or anything like that and just keep going rather than retaliate how they wish they could um, or wish they would if they were from um, another race, um, which is very interesting. Um, but I think as well as a Black man myself, the, like, it did make me think like these are things that sometimes as well are so internalized right. in you that there mm-hmm. was so much in this research I like, thought, oh, I also think this way, but Mm -hmm. it's so internalized in you from such a young age you forget that this isn't normal right not everybody else thinks this way um there's a reason why which was really interesting um and again it just made me think i wish i could continue (laughs) this research because there's just so much more um and even in the paper there was so much um i kind of had to like it was just i'm sure you probably had the same thing you just have to keep condensing Mm -hmm. and cutting out so much from the paper because there's only so much you could put in but yeah it's really it's yeah, it's really interesting to hear in all these
1: accounts. Yeah, yeah, and um, not uh, related to cycling per se, but uh, but I remember during lockdown like, um, and during the time when most people were still, like, wearing face masks, mm. and I think there was some research on um, sort of the negative impact and perception of black men uh, in particular because it was more difficult for them to use facial expression to kind of signal, I don't know what you call it, like friendliness, lack of hostility, um, because they're covering their faces. So they already like, you know, already kind of perceived as being hostile or threatening. Um, and then when you, they had the face mask on, that kind of like um, uh, reinforced that perception. Yeah,
2: that's that's really interesting. Yeah. Again, it's very sad to hear. It's not surprising mm-hmm. that that research is there. Um yeah, it's, I didn't. I wish I was asked about whether COVID had any effect on the cyclists or if that changed. I think.
1: Uh, yeah, mm. I wish I did more research. Well, one thing um, that came up um, in my research that uh, I wonder if you um, had sort of similar stories. Maybe not because you focus in London, whereas I sort of went outside London, as that when during lockdown um, there were. You know, you were not supposed to leave your local area and, but it was never defined what local area was. <laughs> yeah. It was just left to people's judgment. And, you know, if you're, you know, if you're walking or you're cycling, local area can feel very different, yeah. you know, because you can cover a lot more ground when you're cycling. Um, especially like some of the people who I spoke with are like endurance cyclists and ultra cyclists. So <laughs> it's like local area. Is it like 50 or 100 or 500 <laughs> kilometers? Um, so, um, so yeah, one of the, uh, women, Talked about, like, living, like, on the border of, um, Leicester and Leicestershire.
2: Okay.
1: But Leicester is very diverse yeah. and Leicestershire is not. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for her, technically, going to Leicestershire was her local area, but she became very self-conscious and her cycling buddy, um, um, was uh, somebody who wore a hijab. So they stopped cycling and it was like, it's kind of a very sad consequence and, a very, and the reverse experience of like what has been touted as you know there's been this like um uptick on cycling uh so many people have taken up in cycling during lockdown and then at the same time sort of hearing even though it's just like one anecdotal experience but still that they had to reduce their cycling not because of the distance in terms of kilometres but distance in terms of the extent to which they would be perceived as local because Mm -hmm. they didn't look like they belonged in Leicestershire but your participants were all from London so you probably didn't have that experience.
2: That didn't come up yeah especially um, in regards to Covid that didn't come up Um, although one of the participants did I think his was Not, not the same. But he did mention something a bit different in terms of um, how he was more scared to cycle in certain areas um, because he felt like if he cycled in areas such as Chelsea, which is seen as more upper class and more white, he felt like if he was to cycle there, he would be perceived as uh, probably as a drug dealer or like, and definitely someone that is not from there. Mm -hmm. And like a, so therefore. Though will fear that people would be thinking, like, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. Um, like, you must be here, um, must be up to no good if you're cycling here. Uh, again, which is really sad to hear. Um, so it's... I, I did wish I did speak about COVID experiences, but I think I can imagine, especially, again, amongst younger participants, where I feel like they probably feel there's more of this uh, perception that young Black men on bikes... Could, uh, could be up to criminal activities, I can imagine that some of them may feel a bit scared to cycle in different areas. Um, but then again, that does, um, now that I remember, there was another participant as well who actually said that in certain areas in North London where he's from, he wouldn't cycle to when he was younger due to, like, gang violence and if people realised he wasn't from that area that could lead to certain issues. Actually, there was two participants okay, yeah. that brought brought that up, which is really interesting. So um that even within our own communities, that there can be issues while citing. So he was this is more again on the younger ones, but when they were reciting their teenage experiences, mm-hmm. uh, which is something I really wish I could do next, which is to research black men, te- black male teenagers because so I, I could imagine there would be very different things
1: oh totally yeah that would be amazing go for it um, yeah I've been thinking a lot because I saw this film about um, is it bike life is that a hashtag where you know this um, yeah kids who are doing wheelies oh yeah um, and that uh, being like this huge subculture mm. and uh, again it's kind of perceived uh, often as a kind of at best a nuisance mm. um but sort of in reality it's kind of a lot more constructive than uh, you know what uh, the other options that would yeah. be available to a lot of these young kids and also they're insanely talented yeah with the kind of tricks <laughs> they can do by just because they happen to be in an urban environment uh, riding their bmx's whereas you know someone else would just be like you know driving the suv to some yeah. like mountain bike track and do yeah. like you know uh, similarly impressive stuff but it's just like yeah it's just funny how the environment and who's doing it kind of shapes the status that we attach to the yeah, activity
2: which is so true because i yeah. think if, even if you put it down to you know cyclists are more are probably way less likely to cause an accident so a bmx rider who was a young black child is probably far less likely to cause any damage to somebody than an SUV. Right, exactly. <laughs> which is just so mm-hmm. sad, but people just have such negative, I guess, negative thoughts on them. And one thing I have noticed if you've noticed this in London is that there seems to be such a big uptake in the amount of BMXs um on the streets, which is so amazing to see. Maybe it's a for planning mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> But it's so amazing to see and especially from black backgrounds I've noticed um and it's not even just cycling as well. Like, um, I'm always seeing like all these rollerblading and roller skating groups as well. So, um, again, it'll just be really interesting to do more research on young people, mm-hmm. especially in the, I feel like, especially in the next few, uh, years, I can actually see a lot more.
1: Yeah. Um, Before it becomes like completely appropriated and mainstream <laughs> activity. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. Quick. yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So I liked the way you talked about sort of invisibility and I think you used the term hypervisibility as well. Um, and I like it because I also talked about them. So, um, so clearly I'm not just inventing this and, uh, I think it's interesting because often narratives want to simplify people's experience and as soon as there's a contradiction they see that as something that devalidates the experience whereas you know like our life, lives are full of contradictions but I think in this example that you're using in your research are based on the experience of the people who you um, who participated in your research can you talk a little bit about that contradiction between the invisibility and hypervisibility?
2: Yeah, I, I love this as well, um, in that it's, as you said as well, it's almost like they contradict each other, but I think hopefully when I explain it, it makes a lot more sense in that I think a lot of black men in um, my research felt they were hyper-visible in terms of because there were so few of them in the cycling space, they stood out so much more, and especially the fact that like they felt like people perceived them differently. Um, so they felt that when they are cycling, that even if they were cycling amongst a big group of white men, that they were see a different set of rules, a different set of perceptions applied to them. And that came across in many forms. Even like a lot of, for example, a lot of participants spoke about how, I guess, they felt they couldn't do anything wrong on the bike because they knew the repercussions should be a lot worse for them. And this went from everything, especially to just stopping at a red light, because I think we all know. Mm-hmm. I'm sure all cyclists have been guilty of this once upon a time. of Just that. going across <laughs> at red light and um, some of my participants felt like they always thought mm-hmm. twice about doing that, because mm-hmm. they are hyper visible that they could be more likely to be stopped by somebody, whether that's just another cyclist or road user mm-hmm. or um, a police person. Whereas on the oh, and also I guess hyper visible in terms of uh, because they are one of very few um, black men in that space that they could be more likely to receive harassment, especially in the form of racism mm. um, as well. I think one participant said how he often goes up to do rides in Epping, uh which is seen as a much more white area, and that him and his friends are seen as just sticking out in the crowd amongst... And um Epping is a very popular place for people to cycle, especially mm-hmm. at weekends. And they felt like people were 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 staring at them or giving them second looks, kind of like, oh, never seen you guys here before, kind of thing. Um, whereas on the blip side, some of the past felt they were invisible. Um, whether that's in how other road users treated them, in that almost like there was a dis disregard for their safety, um, because they felt like being a black man they were seen as lesser than, um, or like kind of like inferior. So there was less regard for their safety or people be more likely to do, for example, like a close pass. And I think even if it's not safety, just the representation of black men in cycling, not just on the road, but in terms of like magazines and cycling clubs and so forth, they just felt like they simply weren't there. The representation was there and also things to encourage black men to cycle simply just... Is not there in the numbers that it needs to be. So it is really interesting. This idea of that, how as a black man, slightly you could feel very hyper visible, but also yeah.
1: hyper
2: invisible at yeah. the exact same time.
1: Yeah. no, I totally get it because yeah, I had the same, um, same kind of findings and, uh, how they also actually like feed each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, in that example that you just gave as well. And there's been some, like, cases, like, recently with, like, I think it was with Muslim hikers and, um, I think it was, like, black women hike or black girls hike groups, um, who, yeah, who go, like, in the countryside and then they've had, like, major backlash, um, because, you know, BBC has done a documentary on them or something because people are not used to seeing non white people in the countryside so there's probably something similar happening there i think i don't know if i'm imagining this i think you've mentioned um uh, in, your, in your paper contrasting the experience of like you know going somewhere like epping forest with uh, with other black men versus then just like cycling in a like a mainstream cycling club maybe as the only black man and then You know, how relatively less attention you get when you're kind of like maybe shielded by that sort of, you're just, you're just a minority. Mm. You don't call attention in the same way as if you go sort of with, um, yeah, with other black men, people from your community into an area where people are not used to seeing you. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think this is something that came across my focus group. I'm not sure if I even managed to put this Mm. in my paper, but but I do, uh, I remember like people in the focus group, they were talking about how, in these cycling groups that when there are so few Black people in the group that there's a fear that, like, other men or other people in the cycling groups may be treated differently or, like, the um, in comparison to the Black men in the group and that the Black men in the group may be seen as, um, maybe they might be perceived they might be slower or just different. There might be, like, different treatment. And also this, um, I think there was also a fear of these white, um, mostly white cycling groups going to areas where the black cyclists may feel less comfortable. And I do remember one participant reciting an incident that happened to him. I think it was somewhere in Devon, somewhere south of England, Mm. like a racist incident. And I think it's just kind of, again, this idea of like they want to go to places where they don't feel so hyper visible. Um, So then therefore they won't feel like they're more likely to be a victim of a racist incident. So yeah, I think there's this almost like a fear of being like the only black person in a club. I think again, that kind of goes outside of cycling. I think that's in a lot of spaces, um, especially in the public realm, that you kind of want to, you don't want to be hyper visible basically. Um, so there's, there was a lot of cause for more black cycling clubs um, as well. And um, even the ones we do have, I remember the focus group, they were saying, like, it's great that we're already starting to have some, but we need more because it kind of goes back to this idea of, you know, black men are not just a monolithic group. There are so many different intersections that we need cycling groups to kind of represent that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there's, there's a lot to do.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And you, um, you nicely called it sort of the cycling ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a really important concept. And you probably had a lot of this in your transport planning circles where there tends to be, I find, at least in cycling campaigning, sort of the most of the focus is on infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And yeah, something, you know, safe spaces, like what are they? Feel like a bit of sort of a fussy, Weird qualitative concept, but yeah, based on sort of my knowledge and uh, and research, and also sort of engaging with various groups, they are quite a significant part, an enabler for people from marginalised communities to take part in cycling and other activities as well. And as we just talked earlier about sort of the relative significance or lack of significance of safety in sort of infrastructure terms yeah. and we talked a lot more about feeling comfortable and feeling safe in a lot more psychological yeah. way um so yeah tell me a bit more about the uh, cycling ecosystem
2: yeah it's yeah cycling ecosystems is, it's a brilliant idea um actually i have to give credit where credit's due mm-hmm. it did come from one of my participants but it's an amazing idea and it's it's just like it's this concept kind of like a in that you know, to kind of get more black men cycling, like you kind of have to like start at the bottom. So then we need to think of like we need to think of ways where we can talk about cycling in places where black men um are basically. So we need to go into black communities, whether that's schools in black communities, whether that's barbershops, which is a place where especially in black communities, it's not just a place people go to cut their hair, It's just I mean places where people just go to sometimes just to hang out. Um churches. Community halls place it in the communities and actually talk to black men and black women. I guess this goes beyond just black men about cycling and how they can get into cycling. And also, I think this going up the level, which is then okay. So, how can they get a cycle, um, a bicycle? And the idea of maybe having like black-owned um, cycle shops. I think this also, especially this. Well, this research was mostly done in 2020, and I think. It kind of jumps off this idea of having more black owned businesses in britain and you know keep um trying to lift our community and some of the participants said they they wish they could go to black owned cycle um cycle shops so we can pour money into these shops and hopefully they would reinvest in our communities and getting more black people to cycle but also it's this idea of going to someone that can help you um cycling and also the idea of like having a role model, because mm-hmm. already we're not represented in mainstream media when it comes to cycling. So, just going to a black owned shop where you're going to go and get a bicycle, going to fix your bicycle, and seeing a black person there, it kind of reinforces this idea that this is for me as well. Uh, like, this is not just a white man's activity, which is commonly. an idea that's flown around. I think this idea of an ecosystem that we're going to the communities and we're already in our communities and there's going to be role models and then the next level up where then we're having, you know, mass cycle Like, for example, the... Make sure I get the actual name right. There's an animal... Cycle Ride. The Unity
1: Ride. Yes,
2: Black Unity Ride, um, which I attended part of <laughs> this year, <laughs> which I absolutely love. And I can't wait for it to just get bigger and bigger every year. And it's just so great how they go through London to really promote promote cycling amongst Black people. But it also just hammers down this message that cycling is for everyone, and including Black men and Black women. And I think just doing more and more of these rides in different areas it would be such a beautiful thing and just really get this message across that, you know, it's cycling is something for us. And I think it's just having that ecosystem because then once you have hammered down that message that cycling is for people that can get more people involved and if already in the communities with the cycling shops and talks and so forth, then, you know, we've got this kind of ecosystem going. Um, I just wish I could put it into reality. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> it's um it's part of a long process isn't yeah. it um yeah and that kind of challenges the um uh, old kind of trite maybe that you know the build it build it and they'll come yeah. idea which i think is true to a point but you will reach a saturation point at one point and then there are those people who will not come whatever yeah. you build um <laughs> yeah and um, and yeah, a lot of the stuff that used to uh used as examples there, like the bike shops and the community rides um are to do with um with the sort of their social interventions right yeah uh and I loved how you spoke about um bike shops. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of research into bike shops, but uh it's not just uh you know you just go into any kind of a you know big chain and having mm-hmm. a black person there to kind of like you know to tune up your bike it's recognizing the role that local bike shops often have in communities in general just like organizing rides and uh, you know developing the relationship with the community uh, maybe campaigning for things as well and that I think makes you see it a lot more in a different is less transactional Mm -hmm. and it's a lot more about being part of that community so yeah I think it's uh I don't think I appreciated the importance of that as much until I started doing my research. And um, it is a shame that whenever there are funding cuts, it's usually the social interventions that will fly out of the window first.
2: Yeah, (laughs) that's true. And I think one thing that I really, well, I hopefully highlighted with my research is that it's not just a physical infrastructure. I think actually one thing that surprised me was infrastructure did come up In my research, but nowhere near as much as all these other interventions. And I think that just goes to show that, you know, a lot of research is always comes down to the fact that we need more cycle aids. And of course we do, but there's so much more around it and these things are all intertwined. Um, So it's it was really interesting to kind of realise that it's not just infrastructure and maybe, I guess, again, this calls for more research. Um, but maybe infrastructure isn't necessarily the top of the list and the mm-hmm. priority um, for things that we need. Um, but even if it is more infrastructure, it was really inf- interesting that some of the participants brought up the fact that when we do talk about infrastructure, inf- cycling infrastructure in black areas, uh, at least perceived, I don't think there's any data yet, um, to be a lot less in black areas compared to white areas, especially the difference between South London and North London. As well,
1: which is really interesting, to yeah think about. yeah, I think it's Adonia Lugo, who talks about social infrastructure, which is I think is very similar to that uh, cycling ecosystem yeah. as a concept, so maybe we will start finishing off, but um, you've kind of said several times that you would love to do a bit more <laughs> research <laughs> uh, into this, but uh obviously as a transport full time transport planner, <laughs> um, do not know how much time you've got, but if you were to um look into um doing some further research, what would you focus on? What
2: I do. Mm-hmm. I think if yeah, if you ask me to do this tomorrow, I think my number one um piece would definitely be the barriers to cycling amongst teenage black men. I think there's so much to learn as well. And of course, you know, if these are our future generations, we need to ask them what we need to basically get their experiences. And if my research has shown that already that the younger the participant in my research, it seemed to be the more negative the experience was, Mm -hmm. it does kind of give me some fear in that. Okay, if this was like a twenty-something-year-old, only God knows what a teenager is going through in cycling. Um, So that would definitely be my next step (laughs) if I could do more research. Um, I would imagine there's probably a lot more to do with stop and search. um, but also probably a lot more to do with fear from, um, families, especially because obviously most of these teenagers still be living at home. And I know one of my participants, he said in the, I think he leads some, a few groups that like a youth group or something on the lines of that. And he was saying how even when he was younger. And this is the same for the, um, teenagers in his groups that their parents install a lot of fear in their kids about cycling whether it's just the fact that they've been in a public space but also cycling in a public space and they would much rather they just didn't go ideally <laughs> but if they did go like they didn't cycle they are just i think there's just so much there installed in young teenagers so it'd be really interesting to be more on that and see see what interventions could be made
1: yeah. And, uh, I think the beauty of this grant, uh, just this in and for active travel was because it was made open, yep. uh, for anybody. So that's yep. how both of us kind of ended <laughs> up doing it without, um, I, I don't know if you, were you in academia at the time? No. No. Okay. So neither was <laughs> I. Um, so I think, yeah, it's probably add something um like a different perspective because yeah you kind of come to it like from a professional perspective and then hopefully you also take that you know (laughs) into your professional life and you already mentioned some of the work that you're doing possible in the the research on scooters which sounds really important because a lot of this data in the UK is not collected
2: yeah yeah um because I know even with that research I didn't lead on that piece my director did um, but trying to get the data from the police was wasn't like that at <laughs> first. It took forever. Um, I I think use a FOI request to get it in the end potentially. Um, but I know it was really hard. Um,
1: and then they often say that we don't collect its data. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which
2: I think is what they did say in the beginning. Um, so it was really hard. But I'm really glad we did get the data, and it. It's, you know, it was sad, but not surprising what, um, the data that we did see in the end. But I think it's, it is good to just have the data to show people that this isn't just in our heads, that this is the reality. And I think scooters, especially scooters are such a hot topic at the moment. Um, it's, it's nice to see that research as well, just to show that, you know, there is issues and topics we do need to tackle if we are going to make e-scooters a thing.
1: Definitely, and uh, it also I think kind of makes a case for qualitative research because at least I often understood or sort of thought qualitative research as to, as something that will provide a bit of bit more insight into quantitative research, but I mean in this case, to be the other way around, you know you mentioned you know the sample size is quite small and so on, but you're looking into something that there is not really any quantitative research in the u k context yeah, yeah, and hopefully. Someone will pick it up, and okay. eventually we'll have government data on it as well.
2: Yeah, hopefully. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks very much for joining me, It was lovely
0: to speak with you. What a great episode! I've learned so much from Acrazy's work, like the interplay between invisibility and hypervisibility, and the way in which direct discrimination acts alongside less obvious barriers, such as the potentially being worse infrastructure and bike parking facilities in areas where more Black people live. I also love the concept of the Black cycling ecosystem. Check out our other episodes, which in this strand include Therese Kenner on neurodiversity in the city, and Matt C. Smith on trans people's experiences of city environments and services in Brighton.